Welcome to the Hollywood and Toto podcast, the right take on entertainment. The hit cast offers a weekly look at Hollywood from a conservative point of view. Sick of media bias infecting Hollywood headlines? Tired of stars insulting your views? Hit has your back. Now, here's your host, Christian Toto. Welcome to episode 142 of the Hollywood and Toto podcast, the right take on entertainment. This week we talk with Nicholas Brennan, the director of the new film Los Ultimos Freakies. The documentary captures a legendary metal band trying to survive in Fidel Castro's Cuba. You can only imagine the obstacles in these rockers' way. I wanted to start the show with a little confession. The hit cast goes live every Friday at about 5 p.m. Mountain Time. But I missed not just last Friday, but a few weeks ago, too. Not cool. My schedule's been crazy lately, not just the holidays, just lots and lots of work pouring, piling up, and I have to say, I just didn't plan properly. Now, I not only run HollywoodInToto.com and this podcast, but I contribute to Newsbusters, The Daily Wire, The Complete Colorado, Bongino.com, and a few other great sites. And more recently, I've joined the cast of The Daily Report on America's Voice. You can check that out on Roku, Apple TV, and other fine sources of entertainment. Plus, I co-host two hour-long radio shows here in Denver. I'm exhausted, I have to say, but I love what I do. My wife has been so kind and thoughtful to let me do this and to let me build this little mini empire I have, and 2019's been a very good year for me. But I'm also blessed to be able to make a career out of what I really care about the most, talking entertainment. And I guess that's a sappy way of saying, this show is going nowhere. I vow as we head into 2020 that that my skips in the schedule will be few and far between, if at all. Hollywood and Toto, the website actually, is having a makeover soon, and the hit cast is going to sound a little different in the weeks to come as well. You're still going to get the same features you come to know and, well, I hope you love, but we'll have new theme song going on and a lot of other bells and whistles to add to the fun. And now, to our regularly scheduled programming. Two recent recent movies arrive with profound partisan baggage. The first is Richard Jewell, Clint Eastwood's film correcting the record on the unfairly maligned security guard, Richard Jewell. The second is Bombshell, the latest Hollywood take on Roger Ailes' downfall. Because we didn't need just two films about that, we needed three. Now, most critics have been fair and kind to Richard Jewell. Very positive reviews for the most part. It's also one of my favorite films of the year. A few critics haven't been so kind, and I'm not not talking about disagreeing with it for artistic reasons. The show notes page at HollywoodInToto.com has a link to one review you've got to read to believe. Wow. The critic essentially says, well, it's a good story. It's well told. The performances are excellent. I like the pacing. Eastwood does a masterful job recreating that bombing, but, well, there are other reasons I hate it. But I want to focus more on Bombshell right now. Now, the film is as cartoonishly anti-Fox News as you imagine. And I have to say, that's a shame. The movie comes alive at about the hour mark. It's almost like they get all their talking points they wanted out of the way. And all of a sudden, it becomes a savvy look at how sexual predators thrive in a corporate climate. That's an important story. And at times, it's well told here. 
after a while. Now, most critics, of course, are weaponizing their reviews to bash Fox News. It's not professional, but it's what you expect. But what I didn't see coming, and I'm kind of kicking myself for being so naive, is another line of attack against the film. In short, why should we care about these women? After all, they're conservatives. Really. Here's one poll quote from Slate's review of Bombshell. No one deserves to be harassed at work, and the fact that these women banded together to bring down an enormously powerful and malignant man is admirable. That doesn't mean I want to spend two hours gazing at Megyn Kelly's seemingly poreless face as she wrestles with whether and how to tell her truth while continuing to play a highly public part in a media ecosystem based on lies. Whew. You know, the media's unrelenting hatred for Fox News means that the women who were assaulted by Roger Ailes all those years aren't worth our sympathies, am I right? Well, it's kind of the same reason Trump fans are getting beaten up across the country, even if they're children, and it doesn't warrant much, if any, media coverage. It's gross. It's despicable. And that message is loud and clear in some of the sorriest reviews of Bombshell. This episode is sponsored by Schwann's.com. What are you having for dinner tonight? Hmm, good question. Schwann's Home Delivery has a solution for you. Stock up your freezer with high-quality frozen foods like premium meats and sides, delicious ready-made meals, ice cream, and more. No subscriptions, no memberships, just a friendly yellow truck that's been delivering food for almost 70 years. Listeners of this show get a special deal. Get 20% off your first order with code YUM20. Check out schwanns.com backslash yum for details. And now here's the hit tweet of the week. This week's winner is George Takei. Yes, Star Trek Sulu is weighing in on the 2020 presidential campaign. And he's clearly a little nervous about the Democratic contenders. Here's his tweet. Any one of these candidates is strong enough to beat Trump if we commit to rally around them, should they become the nominee, that is, if we Democrats don't tear them apart first. Most of us aren't going to get the candidate we prefer. I suggest we be prepared to get over it. Worried, George? Yeah, you should be. Please subscribe to my daddy's podcast. If he gets 100 new listeners, he'll stop forcing me to record these spots. This week's hit tip of the week is Marriage Story. Now, the film is getting lots of Oscar season buzz, and understandably so. And I usually reserve this slot in the show for lesser-known titles, things you haven't been hearing about nonstop. But bear with me. I think this one deserves a little extra attention. Now, there are definitely going to be people who don't want to watch Marriage Story. It's about a couple going through a divorce. It's ugly and painful and raw. A good friend of mine watched the first 20 minutes and, well, he pulled the ripcord. Others on Twitter are saying how eager they are to avoid watching Marriage Story at all costs. I gotta say it's a mistake. Scarlett Johansson and Adam Driver are excellent as an artsy couple going their separate ways. The writing here is brisk and bold and the supporting players are just as good as the main stars. Loved watching Ray Liotta here. He's excellent, but I have to say special kudos to Laura Dern. It might be the best performance of her big screen career. She plays the kind of divorce lawyer you want on your side. And if you see her on your spouse's side, you're going to say a whole bunch of prayers that it goes over quickly because she brings it. 
Now, I get it. Marriage Story is not the kind of movie you want to watch on a breezy Saturday night. It's not fun. It's not exciting. It's not a roller coaster ride. It's challenging. And it's going to leave you wanting to talk about its themes for quite a while. But like the best art, it's enriching and kind of life-affirming. Now, you're not going to expect a happy ending in the traditional sense. And that's not a spoiler. If you watch this movie for about five minutes, you know essentially where things are headed. But there is some hope. There is some healing that's baked into the story. Marriage Story is a new Netflix film, a Netflix original, vying for Oscar glory. It's also one of the best Netflix movies we've seen in quite some time. Political Spirits, the weekly conservative podcast that says the left and right should have a few drinks and talk. The only podcast that intersperses commentary with the sound of pouring alcohol. Host Franklin Rye, an experienced governmental affairs professional, offers analysis, commentary, and conservative solutions mixed in with amusing anecdotes about the sausage-making process. Ever wonder how democracy is like a Chevy Suburban? Did the Beatles really write conservative songs? How a Democrat politician is like the Archelians in Men in Black? Add to that occasional historical episodes with a patriotic bent, kept at 30 minutes or less, perfect for a commute, and you have a podcast recipe to serve conservatives, political news and opinion junkies, and those who just wonder how on earth we reached the point where so many in our country think patriotism is a dirty word. Please join us at Political Spirits. That's politicalspirits.libsyn.com or on Twitter at Franklin Rye. You know, it's been a while since we checked in with Fredonia's Jim Culver. Let's fix that. I just chatted with Jim about this year's Woke movie disasters, bomb after bomb after bomb. He's got some good insights into the matter, as well as hope that Hollywood is finally stopping, is finally getting the message, stop with the lectures. I'm not so sure. I hope Jim's right. But here's my conversation with Fredonia's Jim Culver. Well, Jim, welcome back to the show. And, uh, you know, listen, it's the end of 2019. This time of year, we always do that recap, a look back at what happened in films, what was good, what was bad. But I thought I thought we'd have you on specifically to talk about the woke bombs of 2019, because there were a few of them. And uh, I think they're rather uh, illustrative of what's going on in Hollywood right now. And they were legion, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, I definitely felt like this year was, you know, the, the year that Hollywood went all in on going woke. There's no, no doubt about it. I mean, you've got, you know, these big franchise movies like Captain America, or excuse me, Captain Marvel, uh, Charlie's Angels, Terminator, X-Men, uh, Dark Phoenix, uh, and I'm n- no doubt the upcoming Star Wars. Uh, you know, all these big budget movies went that route. And then, you know, you had smaller movies. You had a really, really good list on your website, you know, and then smaller movies like Hustle and uh, Booksmart, uh, Longshot, you know, all these, these, you know, these smaller movies that should have been really about their story, but were very, very woke as well. And, you know, they really aren't making a whole lot of money. Uh, a lot of them are just bombing outright. And, uh, you know, you're just kind of waiting for Hollywood to learn at some point, you know, learn their lesson. But, uh, yeah, so it was definitely a, a big year for that. Um, you know, it kind of felt like, you know, it was, uh, it, they were kind of all over the place. But, um, but I mean, the good news is that a lot of them bombed and, um, you know, it's really not a sustainable business model to keep yeah. pushing them out like this. So, is there uh, there's, one, only, there's only, I'm sorry, go ahead. Is there, is there one particular film that jumps out at you? Uh, maybe, listen, we could detail all the reasons why they were woke, but I think maybe just speak, picking one film and kind of highlighting what it did 
would be maybe the best way to illustrate it. You pick one and, you, and, and why it, it sort of went in that direction. Uh, well, I mean, probably the most uh, high-profile one recently was Charlie's Angels. And, you know, that was a, um, you know, it, it wasn't really a remake that anybody was really asking for. Uh, but, <clears throat> excuse me, but there, you know, it, it had been successful in the past and, uh, there were a lot of good directions they could have gone with it. I think, you know, it was, it was really well known and had been well known for decades for just being kind of a fun action comedy, uh, series. And then this version took it in such a different direction, such a political direction. And it was very in your face, uh, with, you know, messaging about, you know, women can do whatever a man can do. And, uh, you know, you know, uh, all, all the male characters were, um, either, uh, you know, jerks or evil or, or completely ineffectual. And it was just very, very heavily tilted and it wasn't any fun. And that was the, that was what it came down to was, you know, Charlie's Angels is supposed to be fun. It's been fun since, you know, the seventies and th it's really not fun to be lectured and preached to. And so it just sucked all the fun out of it. And, yeah, and it was, I think it was very obvious about it. Looking at the trailers or, or up front, it was very clear about what it wanted to be. What's interesting about Charlie's Angels is that the con. You're right. The brand is fun, and they went away from the brand. But more importantly, it's a movie about female spies that, on the surface, without any tinkering, is technically empowering and pro women, and something we don't see every day. So I think you you play it straight, have <laughs> fun. And then the, the audience got the message, hey, women could be superheroes and spies and can kick butt and take names. And like you don't need to tinker. You don't need to, to, to alter a syllable. But they couldn't let it alone. I think that's, that's the real lesson is that you know, if you want to tell a story, you tell a story. And if there are mm -hmm. themes there that are empowering, great. No one is complaining about movies like Alien where Ripley is the heroine. And no one is complaining about other films of its ilk where the females are in charge. It's when the lectures start. That's when we kind of go, oh, yeah, that's uh, – I'm, I'm not feeling that. And I, I think Hollywood doesn't get that message. Well, yeah, and I think that's—I mean—that's one of those instances where I think it crosses the the Rubicon, if you will, from from non woke to woke. Is you know, the, being empowering really isn't woke in and of itself. I think a lot of people are on board with that. It's when it crosses the line to being you know anti male or to you know to knocking down knocking down men. I mean, that's—I mean—that's sexist, and so that's uh, that that is more what we consider to be really woke, and that's what turns people off. Is you know you you, you get past this positive thing into something negative when you look back on the last jedi and i mentioned jedi because the rise of skywalker is coming in a few days i thought that oscar isaac who's a very good actor tons of charisma i thought when they introduced him in the force awakens i'm like hey there's the new han solo we needed a a roguish character and then the last jedi comes along and not only doesn't really use him well but basically berates him with the female cast members so you know, it's – what are you doing? It's so obvious what the agenda is, and it really hurts things. Uh, I, I think we're both dancing around this subject. Maybe you can kind of clarify it. I <laughs> don't think Hollywood learns the lesson yet. I don't think they sit back and say, hey, a lot of these progressive films didn't do well. A lot of the lecturing seemed to fall flat. Maybe we shouldn't do that. Or, or am I wrong? Do you think that on some level Hollywood is getting the message that this is not what we want? I think they are on some level. I mean, a good example would be Ghostbusters, which got a you know obviously a very woke uh, reboot about three years ago, and obviously nobody came out and admitted that 
that they they had miscalculated with that, and they all they closed ranks as they always do when when they got criticized. But uh, but you know the, the the proof is in what they come out with in the future, and so the the next the next film is obviously looking very non-woke it looks more like just kind of a fun mix of stranger things and and ghostbusters and and um there's no identity politics that we can see uh so i I don't think they're going to just own up to what they did i think they're going to very quietly make a lot of changes uh like that where they they get they get their franchises back on track um you know i think that it's very hard to get through to Hollywood because they follow trends and they tend to make movies about three years out, you know, following these trends. And so you, so they, it takes them a long time to wake up to realize that these trends aren't working, you know, and this has happened, you know, it happened back in the seventies with the easy rider type movies that, you know, um, you know, ticket sales tanked when those kind of movies started coming out. Uh, you know, ticket sales were down like 60 or 70%, I think back in the seventies. And then in the, and then it happened again in the early two thousands with the Iraq war. And they made all those, those Iraq war movie bombs that nobody wanted to see. Uh, but it takes them some time to kind of wake up and realize that, that, you know, they're, they really aren't capturing any movement that's going to go see their, their movies. And I think that's what they did with the culture war. They saw, they saw the culture war and they said, Oh, look at all these, you know, social justice warriors on Twitter talking about representation. You know, the, you know, these are all ticket buyers. And so they, they went out and made all these, these kind of movies pandering to them and they, but they didn't really understand their audience. And so, uh, they're, they're, I think they're kind of waking up to the fact that people are not buying tickets to these movies and they're not going to buy tickets to these movies. And there are, there certainly are people in Hollywood that are just out, out ideologues that, uh, that are probably not going to change because they, you know, they see it as kind of like, you know, when you move the Overton window, you're talking about changing what's acceptable to talk about. And I think they're trying to do that with our culture. Mm-hmm. You know, they, you know, they, they're, they're trying to, get more and more blatant about these messages because they think that that will make it more acceptable to push them in the future. So I think you have, you certainly have that element in Hollywood, but I think at the end of the day, there's a lot of people that are, uh, that care about their jobs and they care about succeeding and you can only fail so much before you have to have to change course. Yeah, I think it'll probably take a couple more years, but they're going to get there. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you, Jim. I appreciate you breaking this down for us. And I think you're a little more optimistic than I am, but I I do agree. (laughs) I think the Ghostbusters lesson is a bit of a course correction, so I'm glad to see that. And I I don't think they're going to do a bait and switch there. I don't think they can kind of push a trailer that seems completely apolitical and back to the fun and then give us a woke Ghostbusters afterlife. But you never know. I wouldn't push anything past Hollywood. But uh, we I don't see. think so because, I mean, they picked Jason Reitman to direct it. And yeah. he's he's known for making some pretty politically incorrect movies like Thank You for Smoking and Up in the Air. And and so, you know, um, you know, he, he might put some liberal messages in his movies, but he doesn't strike me as the kind of person who would go woke. So, uh, you know, he's more focused on storytelling and obviously being the son of Ivan Reitman. I think he, you know, is someone you can trust to actually tell a good story. Yeah, so. Daddy's Legacy is first and foremost in his mind. But uh, Well, thanks again, Jim. Again, you can find Jim Culver's work at 3donia.com. There'll be a link to that great site on the show notes page at hollywoodintoto.com. Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and let's uh, talk again real soon. Merry Christmas to you. Thanks for having me on. Well, as I said earlier, we've missed a couple episodes, so I've got another guest commentator on board. Jim Lakeley is from the Heartland Institute, and he weighs in on one of the craziest movie debates I've seen in a while. It involves Ford versus Ferrari. Um, Jim also talks about Jerry Seinfeld, not just his comedy, but how he could strike a death blow to PC police and all their crazy activities. 
I don't think it'll happen, but I think Jim's got a great point to be made here. I hope you enjoyed this chat as well. Well, Jim, welcome back to the HitCast. You know, you and I had an email exchange recently, which I thought was obviously perfect fodder for the show. And it starts with Ford versus Ferrari, the new movie with Matt Damon and Christian Bale. And, of course, that's a really good film. It could be Oscar-worthy, we'll know in a few weeks. And the story is fascinating. But some critics have had issues with it. So I want you to maybe dig in from there, take the story to the next stage, and, and express why, why you were so outraged by the outrage, because I, I think it's kind of funny. Well, yeah, there was, there was a, the story that I shared with you, Christian, was uh, a story by Douglas McKinnon in the, in the Daily Caller that was um, pointing out that some liberal leftist movie critics were not very happy with the way Ford versus Ferrari depicted history, the actual history of what happened in the uh, in that you know very famous. Well, now it's more famous. A lot of, a lot of people actually w- didn't know about it, but in the history of uh, the development of the automobile and in racing, it was a huge it was a huge moment. Yet, you know, you had progressive uh, websites attacking it as, quote, the climate change horror film that nobody needed <laughs> and that it was laced with xenophobia and white masculinity. And um, uh, another uh, Bloomberg News author criticized the, the movie, writing that it was, quote, a devastating picture of the lack of diversity that permeated the automobile industry in the 1960s. And the author also added, when I say men, I mean white, straight men. And that Ford versus Ferrari shows a generation best lev- left dead and gone. Ouch. Now, <laughs> and by the way, how dare they assume the gender of everyone in the movie? That seems inappropriate. Well, it does. But hey, you know, facts are facts. I mean, it was mostly men working in the engineering department of uh, Ford Motor Company. That, that, uh, and, of course, Carol Shelby was the developer of the race car for the 24 Hours Le Mans, which, which won the race. Oh, I'm sorry. Spoiler alert. I don't think they'd make the movie a Ferrari one, so uh, you can probably figure that out on yourself by yourself. But, you know, I keep thinking, Christian, that we're going we're gonna to reach peak wokeness and peak absurdity of injecting today's uh, the, the moral standards of the woke left today, which, by the way, are not the moral standards of the majority of Americans, but injecting this into the past decades, even hundreds of years in the past. And if it doesn't quite measure up to the radical left's idea of being woke enough, it has to be dismissed as not even good art. You should even see it. And it should be it should be slammed as not being, um, you know, being misogynistic or is this like xenophobia and too much white masculinity? Here's a newsflash. Muscular, macho men loved racing cars. That's where it comes from. It's not. It, it's a thing that guys like to do, uh, and they like to do that in the 1960s as well. It's just. It just amazes me. I didn't see any pushback from the filmmakers on any of this uh, far leftist woke um, reviews of their movie, and really the unfairness of of upbraiding a movie or criticizing it because it doesn't meet, um, you know, the the gender and uh, sex and class standards that the woke left has today. It just it just is a fact that there weren't female engineers or female race car drivers in the 1960s in the 24 Hours Le Mans. That's okay. It's okay to look at that in the past and enjoy it as art and maybe even learn a little bit about the history of that time. Yeah, it's amazing the silence from Hollywood. And, you know, I've covered this a bit at my website about uh, free speech issues where I feel like there are a handful of comedians, maybe Rob Schneider, Adam Carolla, but most of the Hollywood left is just stone cold silent 
on issues about free speech and be able to tell the stories you want to tell. And this is a great example. We've seen also with uh, Todd Phillips, the director of the movie Joker, he came out and said, well, you know, I don't think the woke standards are helping comedy. It's hurting comedy. It's one of the reasons why I don't make funny movies anymore. And of course, the usual think pieces rose up about how dare he and he's behind the times. Well, guess what didn't rise up? No one from his community said, hey, I think Todd has a point. Or even I think Todd should be able to express that point. They were silent. They said nothing. And I think they either silently agree or they're scared to death. And it's a really weird time, especially when you have the big, big players in Hollywood. You know, what would it cost uh, a Matt Damon to say, hey, this was history. Let us tell it. Right. <laughs> Go pound sand. I, I think, he, I think I'd, I'd make him my new hero if he said that. But uh, they don't do anything like that. Right. I mean, I, I don't think we're going to get reform and, and really, you know, a lack of insanity in Hollywood unless some of the people on the left, and Matt Damon is a man of the left, it's his own movie. He might have an Oscar nomination for this. I'm sure he enjoyed making the film. And, you know, working with Christian Bale can sometimes be a challenge, but they created this this film that's getting a lot of great reviews, except for from the radical left. And it would be a huge moment in our culture if Matt Damon would just say, look, come on, cut it out. Just Just enjoy the movie for what it is. It depicts history, of course, with creative license. And this is an important story to tell. But we're not having that. We don't have that at all. In fact, later in this story from the from the Daily Caller, um, the the author talked about how after um, Steven Spielberg's Saving Private Ryan, which will a hundred years from now, uh, people will still be watching that film, and it's a celebration of the incredible bravery and selflessness of the greatest generation, especially those who stormed the beaches of Normandy in nineteen uh, in, in during World War Two, and. You know, look, no women stormed those beaches. Um, it just didn't work out that way. Uh, these were young men uh, in the prime of their lives that gave their lives to save Western civilization. Now, the, the woke left today doesn't think much of Western civilization, and they certainly wouldn't think it was worth saving. And But, you know, there hasn't been any pushback on yet, I should say, on saving uh, Private Ryan. But that movie did more than anything really to help push forward the idea that we needed a World War II memorial in Washington, D.C. Uh, I was living there at the time, and it was kind of, you know, foundering. It wasn't good. It wasn't really getting the momentum it needed. That movie really helped push it uh, over the over the finish line. And in fact, they um, uh, they reached out to Steven Spielberg um, and asked him, you know, if, if we we're raising money, if we could just get, um, you know, you to, just to give some of the money so we can say that you donated, then a lot of other donations would come in. Steven, uh, Steven Spielberg said, well, how much do you need? They told him the amount. The next day, a personal check from Steven Spielberg was written and given, and there you go. Um, they, were, they were on their way. Um, it would be nice if instead of giving money, and that's to be admired, uh, that they actually spent some of their, um, some of their social capital to push back on um, you know, on the woke left that is really destroying creativity and destroying cinema by requiring that everything meet these kind of woke standards that are not interesting and not fun um, and are really antithetical to enjoying yourself at the movies. Yeah, I think actually doing that, speaking out, is more costly in a, in a weird way than I'm sure that very large check that Stephen so nicely wrote and gave to the cause. It, it's it's yeah. really fascinating. And again, you know, stars are more political than ever. They, they talk about every issue that matters, except the ones that you think would be directly tied to their own license, their own community, their own artistic endeavors. How could they possibly si be silent? And, you know, we've seen enough examples where 
if you don't back down, if you don't apologize, nothing really happens. I remember, mm-hmm. a, gosh, maybe a year or two ago, the, the woke police came after Jamie Foxx for something he either said or didn't said. He ignored it. The story went away because that's the way the news cycle works now. Just ignore right. it, batten down the hatches, and it'll go away because the woke crowd will be upset about something else. And one last quick thought on the woke police. What they deem important, if not essential, today I guarantee it's going to change tomorrow, the next week, or next year, because the standards are so fluid on the left. It's the, the, they don't have any sort of hard and fast rules. It's almost like they're making it up as they go along. You know, years ago, uh, a comedian could be in blackface if he was playing a specific character. Now that's unacceptable. I wonder what's happening today in the comedy scene that will be deemed unacceptable in five years, ten years. I, I think I think I'll be shocked, but not not completely surprised. I think you would think almost everything that's said today would be <laughs> would be no, unacceptable right. in 10 or 15 years at this rate. I mean, can you imagine even um, you know one of the most one of the most important and groundbreaking uh, comedy films of all time? Of course, was Eddie Murphy's Raw from uh, what was it 1983 or something like that, early 80s. Um, if you watch that today, that entire routine has to be thrown out. Mm-hmm. Uh, George Carlin, genius. Most of his routines are extremely problematic today. And this is where, you know, woke movies and, and injecting um, social justice warrior messaging into, into films and doing it on purpose, which a lot of people in Hollywood are doing, is turning out to be a, a pretty money-losing um, proposition. And so, you know, eventually they might learn from the free market that you can't keep doing this and have people interested in seeing your quote unquote art and because they want to have fun. They want to enjoy it. They don't want to be lectured to all the time. Yeah, I think but at some point you would think you would think if, if money can't motivate you, how about your creative, your creativity? How about your creative voice? You know, and, and when enough uh, artists understand that their voice is next, their voice will be silenced next, that would be the turning point. And I think you're seeing some comedians, of course, um, Dave Chappelle, the great example, his special just annoyed the woke police to no end when it came out, but audiences loved it. Bill Burr, not quite as famous as um, as Dave Chappelle, but uh, he had a fantastic special on Netflix as well. He went right at him, right, right directly at the woke police, and it was hilarious. And the audience laughed. And he didn't. He doesn't seem to care what people think because he just wants to be funny. That that kind of mindset needs to grow, not just in comedy, but all across our culture. Yeah, and I think what needs to happen, sadly, is for the people on the left to get bitten to get pulled over by the PC police. Just a quick example. Sarah Silverman, a couple of years ago, I covered at my website. She talked about, well, you know, the PC police and sort of all these woke expressions, it's the young people telling us what to do and and sort of course correcting, and it's important and it's good. That was her then. Then, Mm. more recently, she lost a film role because she was in blackface 10 years ago on her TV show. It wasn't meant to be insensitive. It was actually trying to be illustrative of racism. She has since Mm. apologized, but it was not enough. So all of a sudden you hear her saying, wow, maybe this is kind of a dangerous trend. Why? Because she got pulled over. Until that happened, she was happy as a clam to just go forward and, you know, give them all the applause that they needed and say they're doing the right thing. But then when it hit her, she had a whole new change of of, of thinking. And it's why I think... Sometimes people on the left have to kind of face the music like people on the right are, and then they'll wake up, and then they'll understand, hey, this could happen to anybody. Because you're saying it, you're right, but until they feel it, I don't think they change their behavior. 
And I, and I think you need an emperor has no clothes moment. You need that. You need that person to point and say that this is this is crazy. And then and maybe, and maybe that'll be the, the the moment that wakes everybody up. I mean, Eddie, I just mentioned Eddie Murphy as he has a bit of a comeback going on right now with his uh, Dolomite movie that I think got a Golden Globe Award and is, is going to be getting lots of awards. He might even get an Oscar nomination. Who knows? But, um, you know, if Eddie Murphy would come out and say this, that's enough. I don't want to hear it anymore. And really almost even did a whole routine on it. Somebody of that stature that might actually finally end this stuff. Cause I really do believe I, we, and we all should hope that in five to 10 years, Christian, you're worried about what the woke police will be, uh, will, will, will be coming up with then. I think, I hope that in 10 or 15 years, we'll be looking back at this time, uh, and be thinking it's as nuts as the reefer madness kind of things in the 1950s. You know, it, it was just this moment that lasted quite a while, but it was just a moment of absolute madness. And uh, we've and we've recovered from it since then, hopefully. Yeah, I think you're more optimistic than I am. I don't know if we're quite there yet or heading in the direction, but you're right about we need like a, a someone of the stature of an Eddie Murphy to say stop. And yeah. you know, it's why Jerry Seinfeld caused such a commotion when he said, I don't play colleges. That was like four years ago. And that those comments reverberated around pop culture because we were so in love with him and his talent and because we knew that he was about the squeakiest clean comic you could imagine. So when he sang the the young people are out of control, then it means something. It's not like Sam Kinison saying, oh, this, this crowd got out of hand because I was too wild. It's right. Seinfeld. And when he said it, people really uh, stood up and took notice. Yep. Any last thoughts on the subject before we let you go, Jim? Well, no, I just one last thought then. I was thinking when you mentioned Seinfeld, he says he won't do college campuses anymore. That's the exact wrong thing to do. He needs to do the college campuses and he needs to get he needs to do an entire routine on what's the, what the hell's wrong with you kids. <laughs> <laughs> and he needs to go from campus to campus to campus. That actually would have a huge effect because I think a lot of, you know, if you're young and and you're free and and you're just starting out in 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 your life as an adult in college, you know, you should be open to new ideas. You should be able to take risks. You should be able to be offended. And you know, maybe a comedy routine by the likes of Jerry Seinfeld going from campus to campus would remind these kids that the people telling them to be woke are the people that are actually kind of trying to control their minds. And if you have any any thoughts for, of yourself, and you should at the age of about twenty, you should be rejecting all of that. And I think the youth today need to be reminded that they're not they're not thinking independently; they're being herded. They're being herded into a mindset uh, in which they're not allowed to think. That's not healthy. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, Jerry Seinfeld, if canceled can go back to his home and just play, have money fights with his family because he right. is loaded. So even if they were, if, even if they tried to cancel him, it wouldn't really matter, but they wouldn't because he would say, the heck with you. I've got whatever my legacy is. I got all the money in the world. You can't do anything to me. And that would be a great, uh, I dare to say, middle finger to this, this culture, this community. And it's what we need. So, uh, hey, Jim, thanks so much. I appreciate you uh, chiming in with all these great ideas and thoughts. And uh, we hope we will chat with you more in uh, 2020. I hope so, too. Love your podcast. Thanks, Christian. You're listening to the Hollywood in Toto podcast, the right take on entertainment. There's little doubt we're living in a golden age of documentary films. I partially credit that to Michael Moore, as crazy as that sounds. He really gave documentary films a, uh, a higher profile, as it were, even though he's kind of basically crushed it whenever he's behind the camera. But I also blame Netflix. They've got a really great lineup of documentary films all across different subjects, some political, not, some not political, and they get a lot of attention. You know, many times I'm talking to people, talking to my friends, and they say, you know what I saw on Netflix? And it's not just the movies. 
It's the documentaries. I think that's a very cool trend. And you also can't wait for this movie, Los Ultimos Freakies, to hit Netflix or a similar streaming service down the road. Now, it's coming soon to theaters, but for now, I wanted to talk to the filmmaker behind it. His name is Nicholas Brennan, and his film follows the Cuban rockers, Zeus, as the band tries to make music in a culture where rock doesn't roll so easily. The state in Cuba doesn't like rock music, or anyone being too creative for that matter. It's the kind of stifling atmosphere found in too many socialist utopias. But these rockers won't be denied. How cool is that? Now Nick talks about how he got to know the band members and some of the amazing obstacles the rockers endured over their career. Nicholas Brennan's making a smart, interesting movie that talks a lot about music and culture and socialist life. It's kind of scary, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Well, Nick, I wanted to start it by finding out a little bit about you and your film background. I saw some IMDb credits, and it sounds like you've had a couple of interesting gigs along the way. Tell us a little bit about how you entered Hollywood, and also, was directing your ultimate goal, or was that sort of a, a happy accident at this point? Yeah. Um, you know, I think I've been interested in storytelling and, and telling particularly documentary stories and stories from, from sort of the real world, our real world. Um, you know, since I was since I was a kid, I grew up in Maine, so my start really came in um, in you know ski films and snowboard films. Is really how I got started, just capturing capturing our capturing our stories, um, and then that uh, has sort of grown into really a focus on international storytelling and, and and stories from around the world. Excellent. Now, when you encountered Zeus the band, and you're thinking, "Gosh, this would be a great subject for a documentary." Did they trust you to tell their story right away? Was there sort of a, a getting-to-know-you process? Because I know they're, they're, they're trusting you with a lot. It's not just a, a typical band getting a profile. There are consequences if you do the wrong thing, if you kind of expose them in the wrong way. Talk about sort of that, that relationship and how it began. Yeah, certainly. And I think that was a really important uh, part of the, of the storytelling and the, and the process of making this film. And, and really, I think one of the reasons why it, it, the film takes place over so many years is it's really about building trust and gathering, um, gathering an, under, an understanding of, of of the story and, and and sort of the collaboration as we as we get the film uh, to its finished place. But actually, the first uh, the way I, I met the band and the way that we were sort of introduced to each other uh, was as a during when I was in, in, in college, we did a I did a study abroad program in Havana, so I had an opportunity to spend three months there. Uh, making a series of short films, working alongside some of the top young Cuban artists and filmmakers, it was really a, a great program uh, through NYU's film school. Uh, and I, at, through that process, I met this uh, met this this band. I sort of stumbled upon a, uh, a heavy metal show, which really sort of blew my mind. Uh, and it it felt quite similar to the concerts I went to as a kid, you know, in, in Portland, Maine. Where you'd see, you know, the bright lights and the super tight band playing really great music on stage, and you're like, "Well, this feels just like uh, what it felt like as a teenager growing up with the, you know, the angst of small town Maine." Uh, but of course, you know, you look around, and you're like, "Wait a second, I'm in, I'm in Cuba, and the people around you have have grown up in a totally different context," uh, and that really sort of is what caught my eye and grabbed my heart on this story. And I, I'd made a short film, uh, spent a few weeks filming with the band on that trip that was back in 2009, uh, and was able to make a short film that uh, really sort of told the band's story in quite a, in about a 10 minute sort of 10 minute sort of profile of the band. Uh, and then we brought that back to brought that back to the U.S. and we premiered that at Tribeca in 2010. 
And so that through that, the band sort of had a sense of the storytelling approach and, and, you know, the way I would tell their story. But, uh, as we went down in 2011, 2012, as we were really starting the opportunity to tell the, the larger story, because I always knew that the band had more, had a much more profound story that, that went way beyond a 10 minute, that 10 minutes could ever do. Um, uh, we had sort of long conversations around what, uh, would be entailed with telling the feature and, and the sort of significantly greater level of intimacy and, and trust that would be required. And, and also, uh, obviously a much bigger commitment from them to really sort of open up their doors. And the lead singer said, you know, Nick, um, we totally hundred percent support this. We think it's a great, a great opportunity for us to really share our stories, but you have to, um, you have to tell a true story. He's like, we're on board hundred percent, but you have to tell the true story. And that, um, telling of the true story in a way that, that allows, uh, audience to really understand Zeus's story and the, in the sort of context of the band in Cuba and what it, what it means to be a metal band in Cuba is, is certainly what the, um, what the, what the, the hard work and the process was for, for making those ultimate freakies. Well, talking about context, I want to maybe just, you can state this accurately for me. The Cuban government thought that rock and roll music was a capitalistic threat. Can you, can you kind of share what that means? I mean, what's the, how do you, how do you break? The, yeah. So it's one, it's a, it's, it's a very amazing, uh, uh, point. And I think, what I found interesting, and I try to find similarities and sort of shared bridges between um, our different cultures and different histories. You know, in, in you know the U.S., we had this great fear in the '50s of Satan's music. You know, oh my God, the hips are shaking. Uh, the what that looked like in Cuba in the '70s and '80s was, oh my God, there's this invasion of capitalist influence. The kids are wearing jeans. Uh, they're going to grow out their long hair. Um, this this must be shut down. Uh, and what you saw in the 70s, 80s, and 90s is you saw very much a rejection of of rock and roll and and sort of a, a repression where rock bands were 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 shut down. You didn't have really a place to play. You couldn't really be a professional rock and roll musician uh, and gather a following, gather fans, and gather a livelihood. Um, and that was very much. Uh, rock and roll being seen as something foreign and something that was there to be subversive, um, which of course, as young people, uh, that's one of the greatest attractions of rock and roll is <laughs> it's, right. it's rebellious voice. That's the whole um, selling point. So that's sort of the whole point of rock and roll. Yeah. There's a scene early in the film where the band's guitarist is saying, Hey, I got to shut this part of the interview down. I can't get anything remotely political. You know, they'll, I'll be visited. When yeah. I saw that, I understand that it's obviously a critical point, but were, were you or your crew ever in danger or threatened or anything like that while you were making the movie? Uh, no, we certainly weren't. Uh, we did, certainly didn't face, um, you know, sort of an overt fear of, of, uh, of being shut down or anything. We, because we had the short film, there was sort of an understanding that we were doing a story about this band and we, you know, we had the sort of, um, you know, the permits and sort of the understanding of what we were making. Um, but the, uh, certainly that concern exists for the band. Uh, and that's, I think the reality for artists, um, of how to say what you want to say in a way that allows people to hear you. Um, and I think the band has made a choice to stay and to make their livelihood in Cuba. Um, and I think that's what you see over the course of the film is what that means. Um, and the sacrifices and the challenges and, 
and uh, the real balance of, of what it means to be an artist in Cuba mm-hmm. um, is, is really what, what um, uh, Zeus's story represents and what I think uh, was quite inspiring, quite fascinating, and, and quite, uh, quite challenging um, to, to capture. It sure is. I, I don't know if, you, if there's an answer to this question, but do you think as, a, as an American filmmaker coming to shoot this movie that you were given a little bit more flexibility? Like if there was a Cuban filmmaker who wanted to tell Zeus's story, would they yeah. have maybe a, a harder path to follow? You know, I think this is a, it's a really interesting point. It's something I've, I've thought about a lot. And it actually, it was uh, the last interview I did with Dione, who's the lead singer. I, you know, sort of asked the traditional, you know, uh, you know, filmmaker question at the end of an interview, or, you know, in this case, at the end of 10 years worth of interviews, I said, you know, Dione, we've, we've been talking and I've been asking you questions for years now. Uh, I'm wondering if there's anything you haven't shared with me uh, or anything else you would like to say or make sure we, we include in this, in this project. And he, um, he gets a little emotional. He says, you know, I just want to thank you actually for, for telling this story and for coming to, uh, and to, for recognizing our story, uh, because here in Cuba, we don't feel, I don't feel, uh, like our story has been told or our story has been respected. And I think the idea of an outsider coming in and, and recognizing Zeus for, for what they are, this, the scene for what it, for what it is, um, was something that became quite clear as soon as I saw them on stage, I knew that they were something special, but I think they've really, um, struggled to be recognized in, in Cuba and, and, and within their own society, um, always being seen as the freaks or the outsiders. For the band, it was uh, almost a bit bittersweet that it was a, a an American, an outsider, who came in and told their story. Um, but of course, as with most documentaries, most storytelling comes from an outside. Someone always is on the outside telling a story on the inside and trying to, to capture um, and share what, what, what they find special in that. Yeah, that inter- interesting point. I think, as, I think all artists want a variety of maybe affirmations that sort of saying yeah. you're doing a good thing and whether it's the you know sold out crowd or someone else kind of honoring what you're doing i was curious there's one thing that fascinates me is that i've heard this before the agency of rock now cuba has yeah. that organization and the film i don't want to spoil it as a as a interesting wrinkle to that at the end of course you have to stick around to see it but yeah talk just share briefly what that is because I, I think even if you watch the documentary you're thinking my gosh i can't wrap my head around that concept yeah, and it's it's a it's a distinctly sort of um, a Cuban situation that really speaks to the way that arts operates within official culture in in Cuba, which is that uh, they have this this uh, famous saying of of that Fidel gave to the sort of intellectuals back in the '60s that every you know they were like you know what can we say we you know we we want to stay here we want to make make art but but you know what how do we do this within the system. And Fidel said, you know, everything outside is forbidden, everything inside is accepted. And that has sort of grown to be the understanding that as long as you're within the revolutionary system and not questioning the foundation of the revolution, it's permitted. Uh, and what you see is that the over the over sort of the cultural history of of uh, the past 50, 60 years of revolutionary Cuba, Castro's Cuba, you you see art very much being taken within the revolution. So things that were on the outside, for example, rock and roll in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, being brought into the revolution with an organization like the Agency of Rock, um, which was created uh, in the 2000s as a way uh, to create an official space uh, for rock and roll. They created a venue uh, called the Maxime Rock in downtown Havana, 
which you know serves as a, a way that that uh, rock and rollers can be professional. They can become government officials in a way uh, <laughs> to play their music. Which, uh, in order to have a livelihood in Cuba, you know, you have to in order to be sort of part of the the you know, in order to get paid, in order to to have a sort of standing. There has to be you have to have some sort of official position, um, and the creation of the Agency of Rock provides that. So in that sense, um, the Agency of Rock has been been created as a way of this music that used to be unorganized and used to be this rebellious sound that was seen as the capitalist influence has been um, sort of brought uh, brought into the official into the official uh, revolutionary circle. Gotcha. Now, you started this all with a short film. It's now a feature-length documentary. Yeah. When you start the project, I know you have certain expectations, certain themes you want to draw upon, uh, certain maybe many narratives within the movie. Looking at sort of that compared to the finished product and what you actually shot on film and captured for the big screen, how different were those two visions? You know, I think in the end where... I wanted to make sure we captured a story that felt like you understood and went on a real proper journey uh, with this band that uh, has represented so much to, 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 the, to this community and, and also the band that represents so much to the, the artists themselves. Um, so I think in the end, the film very much uh, represents what my initial uh, vision and dream was, which was to bring people into the intimate lives of these artists, uh, a real sort of diverse spectrum of artists that are within the same band. Um, I think what I didn't appreciate was the amount of time and the process, uh, that would be, that would, <laughs> that it would take to take a 10 minute film and make it a 75 minute film, you know, over the course of, of 10 years and, you know, uh, many, many different production trips and a whole lot of effort and, and creativity on behalf of a whole, a large community of, of collaborators on this project. Gotcha. Um, I very much didn't appreciate the process, which is a, a, is a beautiful thing in itself. But in the end, I'm, I'm quite, quite happy and, and, and feel like we landed, um, landed in a place that does, does justice to their story. And I think tells an important story for, for everybody to connect with. It certainly does. Uh, I was kind of curious, what do you think people should take away from those people's freakies regarding socialism and the system was shot it's 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 impossible to separate the two but what's yeah what what would you kind of what's the takeaway that you think audiences will have from that message um i think what's important from a a position of of the the sort of universal message of the story what i what i take from it is is the importance of pursuing and the persistence of sticking to your voice and staying true uh to what you love regardless of what the system or what people are tr- sort of pushing down your throat or trying to, to force you into, into a different area. I think what you see over the course of the film is you see five artists who absolutely love what they do, uh, and have an incredibly difficult time <laughs> doing it over the course of three decades. Um, and I think that's a message, uh, that we all can, we all can connect with in the work that we all, you know, in any sort of creative passion you have, is that like, you know, people are going to make it difficult for you and people are, are, you know, systems will try to crush you. Um, and I think what you see at the end of the film is uh, a group of people that have stuck to doing what they love, um, and, and pursued it. Um, and I think, uh, that's a, an inspiring message. And I think also the opportunity for people to see into Cuba and see what the distinct challenges and, and, and 
um, frustrations of life there uh, over the course of the history, I think is an important thing. And certainly was a goal of mine was to create uh, a film that broke away from some of the traditional imagery that you see. Um, that's often quite oversimplified, whether that's, you know, the, the Buena Vista salsa, um, you know, imagery or the, you know, the idea of this sort of the great, uh, hope of the opening, uh, that has been, has been dashed. Um, you know, I wanted to make sure we were presenting a, a, a complex and ultimately more true, uh, experience of what daily life is like, uh, as an artist in Havana. With this project finally coming to an end, now the movie's on the festival circuit right now. I was going to use, do you have a new project lined up, or is that still in development? What 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 else can we expect from you in the uh, next couple of years? Yeah, I mean, we're cer- I'm certainly super excited to begin sharing this this project, and we just had our premiere in New York. We'll be screening in Havana um, quite quite soon uh, for the band, and then uh, we'll be out on the circuit uh, and traveling. Ideally, bringing this story into into. Uh, into theaters around the world, and then uh, ideally into people's living rooms, uh, so you can you too can bring a bit of Cuba into your home. <laughs> um, and then I, for me on a on a personal level, I've got a couple uh, different projects I'm I'm excited about and pursuing, um, and uh, certainly uh, a through line of 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 um, international sort of understanding and, and and global storytelling in a way that connects to something that you can feel. Uh, and relate to, uh, regardless where you are, is, is really sort of a, a, a theme that I that I explore. Well, you did just that with Los Ultimos Freakies. And again, thank you, Nick, for joining the HitCast. Again, the film is Los Ultimos Freakies. And you can see where it's going to be heading next via the film's Facebook page. You can find the information and more links at the show notes page at hollywoodintoto.com. Nick, thanks so much. It's a really, really good movie. It's a powerful film, and it, it makes you think. It makes you appreciate the values and freedoms that we have in America, and hopefully more and more people around the globe will have just that as well. So thanks again for your time. Exactly, and thank you so much for your time. Well, thanks again for listening. Don't forget to check out HollywoodandToto.com for both the show notes and, of course, the latest entertainment news. Please follow me at Twitter at HollywoodandToto. And we'd love it if you leave a podcast review over at iTunes. See you next week. This episode is sponsored by Schwann's.com. What are you having for dinner tonight? Hmm, good question. Schwann's Home Delivery has a solution for you. Stock up your freezer with high-quality frozen foods like premium meats and sides, delicious ready-made meals, ice cream, and more. No subscriptions, no memberships, just a friendly yellow truck that's been delivering food for almost 70 years. Listeners of this show get a special deal. Get 20% off your first order with code YUM20. Check out schwanns.com backslash yum for details. This episode is sponsored by schwanns.com. What are you having for dinner tonight? Hmm. Good question. Schwann's Home Delivery has a solution for you. Stock up your freezer with high-quality frozen foods like premium meats and sides, delicious ready-made meals, ice cream, and more. No subscriptions, no memberships, just a friendly yellow truck that's been delivering food for almost 70 years. Listeners of this show get a special deal. Get 20% off your first order with code YUM20. Check out schwanns.com backslash yum for details.